We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 19th, 2021, as the Chicago White Sox get a little revenge on the Houston Astros this past weekend, winning two out of three. There's a lot to discuss from this series, as we thought it would be a good barometer to see where the White Sox are, especially post-All-Star break, before some key players come back from injury, and what parts of the roster that could be strengthened. But man, the starting pitchers were great again, and home runs are being hit. Tim Anderson set a new team record, and it's time for me to eat some crow about Carlos Rodon. Speaking of key players getting healthier, we'll have the minor league report recapping the action down in the farm, which of course means Aloy Jimenez. Also preview the upcoming series against the Minnesota Twins as a familiar face makes a returning start for the White Sox. And finally, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. We got a lot of show to cover, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim! The White Sox win two out of three against the Houston Astros. They are now 56 and 36 on the season. This means if they finish the last 70 games below 500, a 34 and 36 record, they'll still get to 90 wins. It's a great cushion. And this was a great series win for the White Sox, even if it is mid-July. Yeah, I think that's what we wanted to see, right? Uh, one, the White Sox be competitive. I would have been happy with one win. Uh, de- I guess I would have been happy with one win depending on how authoritative it was. If they barely squeaked by, almost blew a lead, like winning 9-8 to eight and were embarrassed in the other games, then I would have minded just one win. But uh, I would have minded just one win. But in this case, you know, two authoritative victories and then just kind of a more run-of-the-mill loss in the other one. I think that more or less... Uh, erases whatever hex might have been over the White Sox or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, mental block or whatever you want to call it that might have been surfaced in October if these teams met and the White Sox were one in six and think, oh, they can't beat the Astros. I think the two games in which they beat the Astros shows that they can beat them rather convincingly when 
you know, they're at the top of their game. Yeah, I mean, they beat up on Jake Odorizzi and the Astros bullpen on Saturday, winning that game 10-1. to I was in attendance for that game. That was a lot of fun, especially the home runs. Jake Berger's first home game, Jim, and he hits a, a no-doubter, a 456-foot home run uh, for his first career home run. So congratulations to Jake Berger. Gavin Sheets hit a home run in that game. Uh, Tim Anderson hit a home run. We'll talk about Tim in a moment. And Jose Abreu uh, hit a no-doubter as well. Saturday was a lot of fun. And on Sunday, uh, winning that game 4 to nothing. Uh, and, you know, it comes off the backs of the starting pitchers for the White Sox this weekend. And even though they lost on Friday, I felt Dylan Cease pitched really well against Houston. So on Friday, Dylan Cease goes five and two-thirds innings pitched. He gives up six hits, three earned runs, a home run, two walks, and he struck out 10. Saturday, Lucas Giolito throws a complete game. Only allowing three hits, one run, which was a solo home run that was way late in the game when the White Sox were winning like 10 to nothing. And he struck out eight, didn't walk anyone. Sunday, Carlos Rodon goes seven innings, only allows one hit, doesn't walk any, and he strikes out 10. So if you Mm -hmm. add it up against the Houston Astros, one of the best offenses in the American League, White Sox starting pitching went 21 and two-thirds innings, only allowed 10 hits, four earned runs, two walks, and they struck out 28 Houston Astro batters. And the Astros lead the league in the lowest strikeout rate in baseball. Jim, that works. And that's been the formula that has been working for the White Sox all season. It does work. Uh, and, and with Dylan Cease, too, you know, he could have gone six had the defense played a little tighter around him. Larry Garcia had kind of a brain fart that opened the door for a two-run inning there. So that was unfortunate. But I think with Cease, we talked about him in the series preview, and he showed me what I wanted to see, which was, you know, adequacy or better against a team with a winning record, a team with a good offense. He'd been you know, building his record on beating losing teams. And, you know, that's fine for a guy in his, at his stage of his career to do, you know, you got to start somewhere and he's started well in that regard. But, you know, as the season progresses and, and you look for highlights, you look for things to uh, signal other parts of development, a start like this is kind of what you wanted to see, especially with the White Sox handing him the first start of the second half being a little bit of a tone setter, even if that's more of a narrative than maybe anything that really counts. And I think he more or less established himself as a credible starter in such a game you know obviously with the way Giolito and Rodon pitch they establish themselves as better but still you know if Cease is your worst starter or if Dallas Keuchel is your worst starter that is really a good rotation that is no knock on them that is praise for um, basically everybody doing their jobs whether it's pitchers pitching coaches managers front office like everybody is doing their job well in this regard so yeah that was uh it was fun to see. I, I think, as you're going to mention, um, it, it, it is the kind of starting performance that can paper over other things for better or for worse. But as we talked about uh, last time, uh, setting up the second half, this is their strength. So if they win leveraging that strength, that's perfectly valid. So I want to talk about Lucas Giolito because after June 20th, we have been documenting he, he's losing spin on his pitches, which for people that are smarter than me are suggesting that, well, maybe he was using some type of substance prior to June 20th to help out his pitches. 
But to have this type of start against Houston and then looking at the pitch map and where he's locating most of his pitches, he's doing a much better job, Jim, of commanding, especially his fastball. And I noticed mm -hmm. in the pitch map that he was throwing his changeup lower in the strike zone. He's been living so high with the changeup in the upper part of the zone because it does a good job pairing up with his fastball. But I thought that was a really interesting adjustment by Lucas Giolito is to have that changeup just pretty much drop out of the lower part of the, uh, the strike zone. He's still getting hitters to chase his changeup. And uh, I'm curious if you think that these adjustments will stick for him as far as it, is it that simple because he was he even said it himself. He didn't like the way that the first half of the season ended uh, for him or overall how the first half went for Lucas Giolito. And if he is going to lose some spin, I guess the adjustment is, all right, I have to live on the corners. I have to live in the upper and lower part of the strike zone. And at least to me in his last two starts against Houston and Minnesota, he's doing a much better job of that. That's fair to say. Uh, you know, watching Giolito and watching this evolution and a very strange evolution when it comes to just how he approached Cy Young Awards or at least, you know, getting into the, the Cy Young running with such a simple pitch mix and such an an elegantly located pitch mix, like high fastball, sure. You know, we, we understand the thinking behind that, the spin rate, the extension he gets, just, you know, hitters not being able to get on top of them, but the high change-ups, the floating butterfly change-ups always seemed like, you know, they, they should be crushed at some point, like that Boston start, uh, the Boston massacre earlier this year where he just, you know, got crushed. That's kind of how you think more starts of his would go along the way just because people would figure him out. And, that start was an aberration. Even still, when you look at the uh, the drop in spin rate, that start still stands out as just something that was just awful or uh, you know, either the, the Red Sox had him perfectly planned, plus the combination bad day, like everything that could go wrong did. But it seemed like that was a little bit of a harbinger for, you know, maybe, maybe like a warning shot for like if his fastball loses anything, whether it's a uh, velocity, like, you know, uh, a ticker more velocity for a, a longer period of time or the spin rate as we're seeing now, like that changeup has to be a bit better or that slider has to be a bit better. Like something has to give in order for him to, uh, you know, not have to rely or not get by on pitches that kind of float over the middle of the plate on the upper part of the zone. So it did seem like that he needed to make that change in order to be viable. And so it's not surprising necessarily that he's, you know, he's tightening up his approach and he's locating his pitches better and that's all that needed to solve it. The question to me is, you know, whether that's something he could always do and just didn't have to. Like, he just more along the lines if he was just focusing on making pitches, uh, his mechanics, not overtaxing himself and the pitches ended up where they were. And this is something he can do once he just makes them, you know, maybe takes him a month to hone his command or whether it's mm -hmm. something where, you know, just... This is going to be hot and cold. He's going to have some starts where he locates immaculately and some starts where he doesn't. And he's going to have, uh, you know, complete games on one hand and then like starts where he gives up five runs over five innings and three homers the next start. Like that's what I'm curious to see. I don't really have an answer for that because uh, as we're seeing with some pitchers for for better or for worse, like, yeah, I, I think Giolito is a guy who's making it up on the fly a little bit, just trying to figure out exactly what pitch mix works the best in you know, during this uh crackdown on foreign substances and you know to his credit like he's making it work and he's not uh 
you know, you know, aside from the Josh Donaldson flare up, which I think he, he got baited a little bit and fell into a trap of getting to war of words and, uh, making the story extend longer than he wanted to. He's been more or less taking it in stride. And I think these last two starts and especially a complete game against Houston, uh, should be something that quiets any kind of speculation that he was a creation of that, which I think for this point in his career and this point in the season is really the thing you want to minimize. And I'm not accusing him of using spider tack because it's not that drastic of RPM drops. Like some guys in the league have, uh, but, you know, it's good. And Giulio Slider is also being more effective. Like, he may have three legit pitches because last year it was very fastball, changeup heavy, and then he flashed a breaking pitch that oftentimes wasn't very good. Uh, just using it as a, here's something to throw you off. I'm going to throw seven sliders out of the 100 pitches I'm throwing. Mm-hmm. 52 of them are fastballs, 45 of them are changeups, and then here's some sliders. But... No, I, I've been noticing he's he's feeling more confident in the slider. So I'm curious to see on how Giulio does uh, in his next start. It looks like it's going to be that Friday night start in Milwaukee. Uh, that's going to be a fantastic series. And see if this continues. Because if he can command his fastball and he's hitting his spots and he throws the changeup low in the strike zone and even his slider also low in the strike zone. I'm wondering how this pairing will go and... And it'd be, it'd be something if Lucas Giolito got on fire, uh, especially the way that Lance Lynn and Carlos Rodon have been throwing. And uh, let, I want to talk about Carlos Rodon here because it's time for me to eat crow, Jim. Uh, okay. I, I, I think it's important to admit when we are wrong, which we often do at, at, over the eight seasons we have been podcasting about the White Sox. But boy, this is some transformation for Carlos Rodon. I, I honestly thought he was toast. Like grade one ash on the toast scale. 2020, Carlos Rodon failed the White Sox by blowing that save in Cleveland, which could have helped win the American League Central. And when replacing Cody Hoyer in game three in the divisional series last year with a three to two lead and there was two outs, he couldn't get a single batter out. He was non-tendered. The other 29 teams passed up on him, and I thought he was signing a minor league deal to prove himself with another ball club. Lo and behold, he gets a $3 million deal from the White Sox to compete for the fifth starting pitching spot. I thought it wasn't a very inspired decision by the White Sox to address the starting rotation. He had an excellent spring training, but I thought, hey, it's spring training. We've all been fooled before by great spring training performances. He had a good first start to the season, striking out nine and five innings, only allowing two hits and three walks. I was freezing my butt off watching him in his second start of the season where he threw a no-hitter, almost a perfect game. Carlos Rodon has a 2.14 ERA in 2021. He has 10 consecutive starts, striking out at least eight batters. He has 140 strikeouts in 96 and two-thirds innings pitched in 2021 to just 26 walks. He's only allowed seven home runs this season. Rodon hasn't seen an RPM drop like many pitchers have after the June 20th substance ban. And Jim, I placed the largest wager I've ever made in sports betting on Carlos Rodon winning the Scion. It's not great odds, plus 190, but in my heart and my brain, Carlos Rodon is the favorite to win the American League Scion right now. And this is the greatest transformation for a White Sox player, positively, I've ever seen. 
going from toast to non-tendered to throwing a no-hitter to an all-star and maybe a Cy Young within a calendar year. So I will be deep frying some beer battered tempura crow for what I said in the offseason about Carlos Rodon. Because after that start against the Houston Astros, as a White Sox fan, you just have to say to yourself, man, get to the postseason, get him to game one, because you're going to be off to a great start. And now that you still have Giolito, who could hyper-focus and perform like he did on Saturday, and you have Lance Lynn in tow, I don't see a repeat performance that we saw in 2020 where the White Sox lost two out of three and were knocked out of the playoffs. With those three, you can dream that, yeah, the White Sox are going to win the Divisional Series and they're going to the American League Championship Series and they're going to win the American League Central and Carlos Rodon is a big part of that in 2021. Where he failed them in 2020, he's... The complete reversal this season, and it's amazing to watch. Now, I'm not a gambler, so perhaps this is a a, a faux pas or a breach in etiquette. But how much of a may I ask how much of a wager you put down, or is that a rude question to ask? <laughs> no, you can. Okay, I, I I don't mind because I am a penny better. Okay, I bet like yeah, ten dollars, yeah. twenty dollars, because I'm afraid I, to lose a lot of money. I, put I don't think Kim would be down. mad at, at at you for this answer. I don't think so. No, I I put a hundred dollars down. So okay. if Rodon does win. I get like $290. It's enough for me to take him out for a nice dinner. There are some people who are going to laugh at me. And they're like, Josh, I throw $100 down on every bet. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I just have that fear. And I stress out when I bet that much money. But with Carlos Rodon and the way that he's pitching, I I can justify it because... Yeah, uh, he is the favorite to win the American League Scion. And I know that the sports books and you'll have the New York media say, well, Garrett Cole, what about him? Okay, he's thrown more innings than Carlos Rodon. You want to break down the metrics between the two? Because Rodon is beating him in many categories between the two. Like if your only Mm -hmm. argument is, well, Garrett Cole's thrown more innings, that doesn't necessarily mean that Garrett Cole has thrown more quality innings than Carlos Rodon this season. So I I will die on this. I went, I'm going, Jim, I'm going from Carlos Rodon needs to be non-tendered because he was absolutely terrible in 2020. I was on that hill in October of 2020 to now July 2021 where I am standing atop of the hill ready to fight anyone in the media uh, and fellow bloggers and fans to say Carlos Rodon is your American League Cy Young like that is to in my head that is amazing that I am on this journey right now well you know um, that kind of reminds me of the 2018 Cy Young with Blake Snell beating Justin Verlander despite throwing 33 fewer innings just because the quality was there. Um, you know, Verlander had 290 strikeouts as Snell's 221, but the ERA was, you know, in, in Snell's favor. So I think if he's, you know, suppressing hits like he is, you know, talking about Rodon and he has the no hitter and he's got the, uh, you know, help in the team, you know, you have the, the difference in team records and stories. I think that he has a legit shot and, yeah, I was very wrong about Rodon too. I think, you know, the White Sox theoretically were wrong about Rodon if they non-tendered him. <laughs> like if they let him, if they let this version of Rodon, you know, the risk of him going anywhere else, then theoretically they were wrong too. So I'm dragging them into it. But 
uh, when looking at what I wrote, you know, I still stand by what I wrote because fortunately, you know, I, I try to at least cover every outcome to figure out how it could happen. So I'm not completely wrong. And in this case, uh, the one thing I pointed to was the big jump in velocity at the end of the year, which came out of nowhere and was the old Rodan. The, the life wasn't there, the location wasn't there, but the fastball velocity was back to where it had been. So that was new and interesting. And so that made me think, you know, huh, you know, it gave me a little bit of pause. And then also just getting away from Don Cooper and Rick Renteria. Like, you know, because I think with Renteria, Rodan was done. Uh, Renteria didn't know how to use them, didn't really want to learn how to maybe use them because I think even Rodan would admit that short outings aren't for him. So if they had to figure out some kind of bullpen swingman role, I don't think it would have worked. So, you know, having Tony La Russa, having Ethan Katz, just having some fresh eyes on an arm that seemed to regain something uh, was enough to maybe think it would work. My bigger concern with it not working was uh, endurance, uh, you know, staying off the injured list. And, and that was my concern even after his April. And so far, he has not lost anything. Like, I thought he would, like, maybe show up, throw 96, 97 for a month, and then, you know, you know, some injury happens, and you think, oh, he flew too close to the sun. So, this case, like, that's what's surprising me. You know, I guess I'm surprised on two levels. One is that, you know, that the stuff is there and even better than it was last year, and that it hasn't faded at all. That, you know, we're heading into uh, closing out the fourth month of the season, and he looks stronger than ever. So that's what's staggering to me. But I will, you know, I, I know you put that poll out there. And I'm going to disagree with you that, that Rodon is the greatest uh, turnaround story. Just because I think Giolito is still more staggering. Just because of, he was the worst pitcher in baseball <laughs> before he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. And uh, just the... You know, the reworking of his mechanics, um, the the fastball life, the changeup, turning into one of baseball's best pitches. Like, I think there are a lot more uh, complete surprises for Giolito, whereas Rodon had done it before for stretches. He had regained the fastball. So, so I think there was a little bit more going for him. I think if there's any surprise, or what adds to the surprise, and I think what would have added to the surprise for Giolito if they're in the same stage of his career, is if Giolito had to be non-tendered. But at that point, he was making the league minimum, so that wasn't really a concern. So I think if Rodon were making the league minimum, they would have kept him too. So that's why I think might be altering the scales a little bit. Yeah, I could understand some recency bias, but at least with Giolito, we never saw him be good. And we knew that he had his Tommy John surgery shortly after he got drafted by the Washington Nationals. So it wasn't anything that you could point to as poor performance to, well, he's hurt. Or he's not taking this seriously. Like, if you revisit our conversations about Rodon in 2017, 2018, 2019, they're not positive, like, from mm -hmm. anyone, actually. And even the White Sox admitted that Carlos Rodon wasn't necessarily taking his rehab very seriously uh, during his shoulder and then eventually his Tommy John surgery. It, it took him getting non-tendered to start taking things really seriously. And now you have serious Carlos Rodon, which is the Carlos Rodon that everyone fell in love with at NC State and was the third overall pick in the 2014 Major League Baseball draft. And I like how our friend Dan Zaborski put it. It seems that like Carlos Rodon has gone back in time and brought to his 21-year-old self to the present 
and the time police needs to arrest Carlos Rodon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is one of the more fun things in the 2021 season. And yeah, it's just a, they're both great transformations. I don't think that there is necessarily a correct answer to that poll question on who's had the more dramatic, good transformation between Lucas Giolito and Carlos Rodon. But as White Sox fans, the fact that we've ha- we've seen these two transformations happen in a relatively short period of time is great. And if Carlos Rodon did this in 2018, the dude's traded. Okay, he's pitching for somebody else because it was during the rebuild, right? You would have been that that last piece following Chris Sale and Jose Quintana being traded out of that starting pitching staff from 2016 that we were so hopeful for. Uh, or I should say 2015 that we were so hopeful for when the White Sox acquired Jeff Samarja in a trade. Uh, so it's, it's great to see from Carlos Rodon. And again, so I'm going from in October... Josh is stumping for Carlos Rodon to get non-tendered to <laughs> July of 2021. Josh is now stumping for Carlos Rodon to win the American League Cy Young. Yeah, it's cool. And I think, you know, you mentioned Rodon not taking it seriously. I think he was just kind of a product of the White Sox stagnation on the pitching front. Like, I think that, you know, Don Cooper, they could have moved on from him like maybe two years earlier than they did. Um, I think it just took, I think it just took like a lot of, yeah, a lot of poor results and just a lot of um, kind of banging their heads against the wall to finally admit that the arrow is over. And it's not really, you know, Mark on him. He had a great run. He had a long, you know, I think any pitching coach would envy the run that he had. So it's not, you know, knocking him. It's just, you know, more a matter of uh, times change and just approaches change. And sometimes, you know, what gets you there just, you know, might not work for another decade. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. So, but I think, you know, Rodon probably just, you know, when Ethan Katz showed up and had a bunch of ideas for him and kind of a to-do list for him, I wonder if the White Sox ever had that to-do list for him, you know, besides just, you know, maybe not going through rehab drills, you know, maybe he just felt like he was just kind of doing the same thing over and over again um, to get back and just not getting anywhere. And so you just kind of get stuck in this cycle where he's collecting a paycheck and they're picking him up. So, you know, he'll just keep trying it. He's, He's maybe following, you know, what they're doing, but you know, just, it's not working and nobody really has a better idea. And then finally just, it took a different set of eyes to have a better idea. What was cool over the all-star break is that his wife, Ashley took video from a distance from their deck as Carlos Rodon is throwing a baseball against their, their back shed in the back of their yard. And he's doing that because their newborn son, Bo is sleeping. He doesn't want to wake up Bo, Mm. Uh, but here's Carlos Rodon throwing a baseball against the shed as he still wants to continue to be warm. He didn't pitch in the all-star break, but he wants to continue to having this success. And the dude against one of the best offenses in the American league on Sunday throws seven scoreless innings, allows one measly single and strikes out 10. And the way that he's doing it, as you've also pointed to Jim, he's his own reliever. He'll start 95 fastball velocity the first inning and then he's hitting 99 or sometimes 100 miles per hour in the sixth and seventh inning when he needs to reach back he's got that elite velocity in his back pocket that he's using uh just a tremendous turnaround and if anyone's gonna beat out carlos Rodon for the Young, uh i think it's on this team and that's lance lynn and he didn't pitch this weekend but it's still big news. So even more happy news for White Sox fans this weekend. Lance Lynn signed a contract extension with the White Sox, Jim. We don't have to repeat the Jeff Samarja analysis. 
This mm-hmm. is terrific. And it breaks down like this. 2022, Lynn will make $18 million. In 2023, Lynn will make $18 million. And in 2024, he has a club option for $18.5 million. It is a $1 million buyout if the White Sox don't pick it up. It is three years, $55 million that Lance Lynn can make uh in his uh in this new contract which is right on the money and what you guessed jim a month ago on a possible lance lynn extension so congratulations i was five million dollars off i thought it'd be three years 60 million you should have hired me to be your agent lynn i'm kidding uh but you know what also fuels the 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 soul as a white Sox fan is that lynn in his press conference said why bother testing free agency if this is where i want to be and mm-hmm. that feels so good as a white Sox fan that a marquee player wants to pitch for your team and rick Khan, in case you're listening and i know that we've been very critical of you over your career Great job on this signing. Seriously, this is what spending the money means. Securing a top five starter in the American League, and Lynn has performed like one the past three seasons. This is an excellent signing. We need to stop with the Adam Eaton type signings. Continue to make signings like this. And there's no better time than the present to get this deal done. So bravo, Rick Hahn. Job well done. Jim, what are your thoughts about the Lance Lynn extension? It's very heartwarming. Uh, I, you know, I said three years and fifty-five million. I didn't think that he would sign for two guaranteed, like that. That the eighteen million cl- uh, for twenty twenty-four would be a club option. Like I figured that he would get three years easy on the open market, so that the White Sox, you know, actually signed him for two years, uh, and it's only a one million dollar buyout for the third year for the club option. That's really something. So I think that speaks to. Um, you know, Lynn's desire to hang around and um, he seems, you know, there's a little bit of like, it reminded me of Mark Burley a little bit, just uh, trying to, what year was it? Was it 2007? Yeah, that was a terrible year, I think, where uh, he signed the extension um, middle of the year when they're talking about trading him at the deadline. And he just, you know, every start felt like it could have been his last and he uh, got standing ovations in July Fans wanting to make sure that he knew he was appreciated. Then he just, you know, re-signed. And they got, you know, more good years out of him and it all worked out beautifully. And it has that same kind of feel to where, like, he could have done better in the offseason, but uh, it's one of those nice sports stories that is not entirely business. (laughs) And uh, uh, as fans, you know, especially when you have fans that are going, you know, 34,000 strong for an entire weekend, like, this is a really nice culmination of fan interest and reciprocation from a player who is, you know, appreciating what fans, uh, the, the fans who are showing up are showing him. So that's just, it's really lovely, uh, which is a word I don't really find myself using all that much, but that's, uh, that's what I'll go with for, uh, this setup. And it's, yeah, I, I think he's supposed to start game one of the double header, but I would like to see him start game two with like a larger crowd there just hmm. because I think that could be pretty cool. We'll talk about that Twins-White Sox series coming up in the doubleheader that they have on Monday. Uh, Let's continue with the good news, Jim. Tim Anderson is on fire. Back-to-back games hitting a home run. His last 10 games, Tim Anderson is hitting 475 with a 512 on base percentage, slugging 775. He's got a 15 game hitting streak. He sets a new team record of 11 consecutive games of reaching on base and scoring a run. 
he's doing which is what you want right from your leadoff hitter mm-hmm. he is doing the job for the season tim anderson now is hitting 315 with a 350 on base percentage and he's slugging 454 as he has eight home runs in the season and look at the batting average leaders folks tim anderson is back in the top five in the american league and he's within striking distance as he's currently fourth right now behind vladimir guerrero jr michael brantley and Alexander bogarts jim again anderson is on fire and mm-hmm. i know steve stone really believes in this and i think i think it it does hold some truth that as tim anderson goes so does the White Sox offense to a point. I mean, I think Jose Abreu, when he gets hot, it seems like he can really carry an offense for a month. But the way that Anderson's been hitting, uh, I think there's got to be a good correlation right now in the, the the amount of runs we've seen from this White Sox offense score, especially in the last couple of weeks. I, I think reading the stories about Lynn, uh, he mentioned uh, that you know, Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu are like a package deal when it comes to leadership, and that you know they're basically one and one A uh, when it comes to setting the tone. So I think you know what whichever one you pick, Anderson or Abreu, for feeling like the offense revolves around you know one of those two players. I, I think it's you're, you've made a right choice. Uh, Anderson, you know the the funny funny thing about him is is when it comes to his average and, and, you know, the way he beats, you know, uh, the batting average on balls in play and all the kind of conventional wisdom when it comes to reliable, sustainable offensive performance. Like I like that. This is what his regression looks like is he's hitting 290, and that's the problem. Like I'm thinking back, you know, three years ago or four years ago and thinking like if Tim Anderson hits 290, that's a good year. And now when Tim Anderson's hitting 290, it's like, oh, he's he's slumping a little bit. Like he's, he's got to pick it up. <laughs> and that's something I don't take for granted because I remember those lean years and, mm-hmm. and remembering how out of control he looks. And it's remarkable to me that he's still as aggressive as ever. The, the strikeout to walk ratio is still very unenviable. And, uh, you know, it, it's... You know, he has games where he'll strike out three times and look like you know just he's completely overmatched by whatever. Usually, a right-hander on the mound doing it to him. But then you look at the uh, you know advanced stats and you see like the 397 BABIP, and that's just kind of what he does. <laughs> and he makes it work. And um, now I think with the the park warming up a little bit, like he poked a couple of opposite field homers, like just a a couple cheapies. But also, I think that's part of his game is taking advantage of the park and hot days and when the ball is carrying. So to see him notch a couple of those, I think, uh, is not a fluke. It's, I think it's part of the package deal of just exactly uh, what he offers this specific team in this specific role they've put him in. And it's just a lot of fun to see. And it's uh, it's nice to see the team you know, rally around him and, and rally around his you know, a form of leadership, a form of expression that, you know, other teams have bristled against. It's nice to see that that is um, entrenched. And that is, um, you know, that, that I, I guess the league's attempts to crack down on him or to, you know, quote unquote, straighten him out you know, with, with retaliation pitches and whatnot, just, just didn't work. Well, we've touched on a lot of good. We need to speak about the bad to try to be balanced on this episode uh, and it, there's not a lot of bad, but this is also related to a question we got last week on the podcast, talking about the quality of starting pitching, covering up the bad spots on this roster. And it was a great weekend for the White Sox, 
But as we get closer to the trade deadline, which uh, we're 11 days away, I think it's more clear that this bullpen needs another arm because even mm-hmm. though Dylan Cease pitched really well on uh, Friday, uh, Jose Ruiz and Aaron Bummer were not good. Uh, I'm a big concern with Bummer. He's just been really inconsistent this year. I, even after the injury, I know that's just, just his first appearance, but I should say before the injury, he'll have a good week and it's like, all right, he's back on track. And then he'll have a bad week. And it's like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And Lurie Garcia Man, Garcia had a terrible weekend, making some really questionable decisions in the field and base running. And even though the White Sox win this series, and there's so much positive to talk about, if we are getting questions about what are the White Sox going to do before the trade deadline, Jim, the answers are still holding firm, and there Mm -hmm. might even be more evidence to make a move. It's bullpen and second base. That's what it looks like to me. And we, we got a question in the P.O. Sox mailbag from Rodney who was asking, like, is Kopech strictly now bullpen short setup work, you know, especially with the doubleheader looming? You know, this would have been a good opportunity to put him in his old role as a you know, spot starter, swingman, three to four inning guy to start, you know, to get to the halfway point of a shortened game and to see him not be part of the equation. Um, because they had a, a four nothing lead. Does this kind of cement his fate? And I think it does more or less just because of the need and how glaring the need is. And, and we saw it in the opener of the Houston series where, you know, and I'll add Cody Hoyer too. He was shaky in, in that outing. Like he loaded the bases with an unnecessary walk and had to go through Jose Altuve to get through the inning, which I don't think he would have drawn up that way. So uh, he's been hard to trust. And I think, you know, when he has to, you know, it, it's kind of like probabilities, like just the the more you have to multiply uh, different combinations of relievers who aren't nails, like, you know, going from Hoyer to Ruiz to Bummer, maybe even, you know, Ryan Burr, although he's been good, just, you know, if you're worried about a Ryan Burr regression, he's another one who could kind of factor into this. Just if you feel like the more guys you have to throw into a mix, the more likely it is that, something's going to go wrong. One of those factors is going to be a negative and the game is going to take a, a turn for the worse. So yeah, it, it's, it seems like in that uh, setup that uh, Larusa had on Sunday with Rodon going uh, seven, and then you had two innings to get through four inning lead against a dangerous or four running lead against a dangerous offense. It seemed like he kind of uh, showed what he wants to do. He wants to lock down sure leads. He doesn't want to dick around. He wants Michael Kopech for the eighth and Liam Hendricks for the ninth. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong in doing so. I think with an eight game lead and with five good starters, you know, knock on wood, but at least, you know, for the time being what he has, it does seem like Kopech is just too much of a luxury for the rotation when he can be such a necessity for the bullpen. So I think that's kind of where the, calculus is shifting now you know perhaps if there's an injury down the line and there's a more acute need for a starter that it can actually go four to five reliably then maybe it's a case where they try to stretch him out again and maybe you know even Kopech might go two innings his next time out to uh, be a one-man bullpen of sorts but it's just hard for me to see with this current setup that uh you know Kopech just it, you know, high leverage work in the seventh, eighth, and maybe even ninth innings. I think that's really the best use for him right now. Yeah, I got a question on Twitter over the weekend asking what is Kopech's postseason usage going to be? 
And I think it's going to be very similar to what Nathan Eovaldi was for the 2018 Boston Red Sox gym in that, yeah, Eovaldi came out of the bullpen. There was that one start or one appearance uh, in the World Series against the Dodgers where he still threw like nine innings and it was in relief as the game went into extra innings. I, I could see that from Kopech in which, especially in a game four situation, if, if Keuchel makes that start and Larusa only has confidence that Keuchel can go four innings and it's touch and go for those four innings that Kopech gets the ball maybe even in the fourth inning replacing Keuchel and then tries to go as far as he can before he can hand off the ball to Hendricks maybe in the eighth inning. That's kind of what I'm envisioning in the future that as a White Sox fan, I'm not concerned that Michael Kopech's going to stay in the bullpen forever. I, mm-hmm. I don't buy that. I do buy it for Garrett Crochet. I don't buy it for Michael Kopech. Uh, but for this season, I think you're absolutely right, especially in the now before the trade deadline. If Rick Khan, if I'm Tony Russa, if Rick hasn't given me another setup guy to use, Michael Kopech's my setup guy to Liam Hendricks because look at everybody else in the bullpen right now. I got Crochet, who was throwing well before the All-Star break. I got Kopech. Ryan Burr has done an okay job. Liam Hendricks has been great. And then everyone else. And I, I don't blame Tony sticking with Kopech being a setup guy right now. Yeah, LaRusa telegraphed it a little bit by mentioning Adam Wainwright in 2006 and how he was handled. Um, you know, was potentially a starter at age of 24, but stayed in the bullpen the entire year, just moved up the ladder in the bullpen the entire year to where he recorded the final out of the 2006 World Series. And, you know, with Liam Hendricks there, I don't think you necessarily have to worry about that uh, from Kopech or, you know, you know, worry about him being a closer. But I think it's just the same line of thought. Like, if he needs to stretch him out next year, if he needs to go from a huge jump of innings from, you know, double digits to triple digits, uh, he knows how to handle that. And with Wainwright, he pitched 75 innings in 2006 out of the bullpen, 61 games. In the postseason, he threw nine and two-thirds. So that got him to uh, 84 innings. And then next year, threw 202. And I think that's kind of, you know, maybe not 200 innings for Kopech next year, but I think that's pretty much how LaRusse had it in mind this year. And since there isn't a more pressing need in the rotation, and depending on how the White Sox can extend this lead, if, even if they do lose a starter, you know, even if they do have to go with uh, only four good starters for a stretch, like they just might have the lead. Um, other teams just might have equally uh, troubled pitching staffs to where, you know, having an occasional, you know, bullpen game, spot starter, triple uh, A, quadruple A guy trying to get by, like that's, that's not going to cost them any sleep, I think, uh, you know, should this uh, division lead be as padded as it is. So that's kind of how I'm thinking is Wainwright is the way to go. And with Garcia, this has been such a positive beginning part of this podcast. I don't want to get too much into Garcia, but boy, uh, Friday was bad defensively. Saturday, I, I still have a headache of what he was doing, tagging up on first on that fly ball and getting himself thrown out by plenty at second base. That just, it just wasn't smart. Cutting off Tim Anderson on a grounder, not being able to field one up the middle, not covering second base with 
a slow catcher on first, so Anders could have an easier throw to get the final out. It just no, he did not have a good weekend, and it doesn't yeah. exactly give me a lot more confidence that he could be the everyday second baseman. Yeah, I think he runs into an overexposure problem. Um, same thing with like Danny Mendick, where just you know he's not supposed to start a hundred something games. Like he's supposed to be like a super sub. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think probably his ideal number of games is somewhere like in eighty, you know, give or take five to ten. Uh, what's What's interesting to me is that you know when you look at Baseball Reference, you look at Fangraphs, he's already tied or exceeded his career best uh, wins above replacement total in either measure. He's at one point two in Fangraphs. He's at one point uh, four at Baseball Reference, and. That kind of strikes me as correct. Like he seems to have the ceiling. Then he, if he gets there, I'm thinking like 2019 when he started 140 games, he just kind of like bonks his head against it. Just <laughs> can't quite get through. You know, playing more games is not necessarily the answer. Like he'll just find ways to lose value here or there. And this year, I mean, he's got his career best on base percentage. He's walking more than ever before. So like he's been a plus in certain regards, but he just always seems to find ways when counted on to do too much to kind of give some of that value back. So that's why... You know, ideally, I'd like to see him in a, a super sub role. If not, you know, maybe, maybe he and Danny Mendick, you know, introducing Mendick more because he did have a single, uh, you know, uh, kind of a clutch single early on in Sunday. Although the you know the, the home runs afterwards made it less important, but it was a nice hit for him to come through with. You know, having Mendick deliver that, I think, and maybe being able to offer a bit more helps. And you know, we also got a question. Uh, in, in the P.O. Sox bag from Scott, who was asking if it's time to give Jake Berger a game or two at second base. And based on what I saw at Charlotte, I just think that's, I guess I wouldn't mind it in terms of just like, you know, should there be a terrible series of events that all of a sudden like eradicate the second or third base depth and, and they need who they have at that, uh, you know, they, they need Mankata at third, they need, uh, you know, Berger at second and they have nobody else. Or if, you know, they, they, you know, have an injury at third, but maybe somebody's better off at playing third, you know, then it's a case where, you know, maybe a burger can be that guy on the right side of the infield. But it's just, uh, having seen him play there at Charlotte so far, just not yet, you know, not, not for like, I think more than a lark and especially with certain guys on the mound, like you wouldn't want to see them, see him out there with Dallas Keuchel on the mound. But just when you see like that kind of error that, uh, you know, Garcia made at second, uh, that opened up uh, a two-run inning against Dylan Cease. Like, I think that would be more likely to happen with Berger out there. Like, there's just a whole lot of responsibilities and plays he has not covered at that position. So I think that's the kind of thing you're flirting with when he plays out there. So I wouldn't mind seeing it just for a random game. Um, but in terms of, like, a, a fix for the position for the rest of the year, I think that's asking too much. Yeah, and we'll see if uh, if a move is made. But, yeah, those are still the the two spots in this roster that may need to be addressed before the trade deadline, but everything else is clicking for the White Sox right now. So it's not, maybe it's not as crucial as we thought it needed to be a week ago. Maybe our minds will change after the upcoming series as the Minnesota Twins come into town. Uh, who knows? But those, those are the two areas right now bullpen help and second base help. And we'll see what Rick Hahn can do. Uh, to help shore up the roster. But the White Sox 
could be getting some good news as far as some key players returning from injury, uh, such as Aloy Jimenez, and now Jake Lamb is rehabbing down at AAA. So let's check in on the minors in this week's Minor League Report after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. If you want an ad-free version of the Sox Machine podcast, you can sign up at Patreon.com slash Sox Machine. Sox Machine Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the 2021 Major League Baseball draft reports, an ad-free version of the podcast and website, plus the first opportunity to purchase or receive our new swag items, like the new Sox Machine caps we just got. Monthly plans start at just $2, and it goes a long way in helping support Sox Machine, which we are very grateful for. Again, visit patreon.com slash Machine to sign up. I regret to inform you that it's time for the Meyer League Report. This past week, the six White Sox affiliates posted a combined record of 7-27, and so if you wanted to hit the skip 30 seconds ahead button a few times, I wouldn't blame you. Charlotte was one of three White Sox squads to go 0-6 this week. In fact, they've lost eight straight, including a 13-12 loss to Gwinnett on Sunday, in which they gave up six runs in the ninth. There's some good news. The rehab stints for Eloy Jimenez and Jake Lamb are cruising along. Yermin Mercedes has resumed his dominance of AAA, and Luis Gonzalez has been great all July. The bad news is on the pitching side, which is why Reynaldo Lopez looked as worthy of a call-up as anybody despite an ERA that began with a 7. Also, Gonzalez jammed his shoulder making an attempt at a diving catch and departed Sunday's game early, so we'll see if there's an IL stint awaiting him. 
The Birmingham Barons are the only full-season affiliate to have won a game this week. In fact, they won three, splitting a six-game rain-ravaged series against Rocket City. The big story is Carlos Perez, who has raised his line to 286 with a 341 OBP and a 399 slugging percentage on the season thanks to batting 380 in July. His strikeout in Game 1 of Sunday's doubleheader was just the second time he's whiffed over his last 19 games. He's not bad behind the plate either, so he could factor into late-season catching plans if Sebi Zavala can't quite hack it and a body is needed. On the pitching side, Connor Pilkington bounced back from a mini-slump at the end of June with three strong outings, although one was cut short by rain after four outs. He's allowed just one run on three hits and three walks over his last ten and two-thirds innings, striking out 13. Cade McClure has been even tougher, allowing just two earned runs over his last four starts spanning 19 innings. Birmingham is the only affiliate with reliable pitching, and it shows. The A-ball affiliates went winless in 12 games between them. Winston-Salem lost all six games in Bowling Green, Kentucky, as an aggressive lineup met a pitching staff that issues the fewest walks of any team in the league, and the result was eight walks over six games. Yoelki Cespedes and Lennon Sosa both had quiet weeks. Yolbert Sanchez was the one guy hitting the ball well, going 5-for-16 with a homer and a double. No walks, but also no strikeouts. He could be promoted to Birmingham at any point and wouldn't surprise me. There isn't much to report for pitchers, at least since Luke Schilling tore his UCL, as Davis Martin has really fallen off over the last month. The Kannapolis Cannonballers went 0-6 against the Carolina Mudcats despite averaging a respectable 4.7 runs over those six games. The problem is that they allowed an average of 10.3 runs per game. Indeed, the offense doesn't look all that bad. Cabaria Weaver, Harvin Mendoza, and Chase Krogman all had OPSs over 1,000, while Luis Mieses went 9-for-23 over the six-game series as well. There's just no pitching to be found, especially since Bailey Horn was promoted to Winston-Salem. Yoelvin Sylvan and Matthew Thompson just got off the injured list, but their abbreviated outings just haven't been enough to stem the tide. The ACL White Sox have the league's second-lowest OPS out of 18 teams, which is the main reason why they're four intend to start the year. There are a couple of decent performances thus far from 18-year-old infielder Wilfred Veras and 20-year-old catcher Jefferson Mendoza, but on the other hand, Elijah Tatis is 1-for-30 to start the season with 18 strikeouts. The pitching is taking its lumps as well, although one encouraging story is 18-year-old Christian Mena, who has thrown a couple of impressive five-inning outings in his first taste of professional ball. And to close it out in the Dominican Summer League, the season is only five games old, but at 3-2, and two, the DSL White Sox are the most successful affiliate of the bunch. The Chicago White Sox next opponent at home is the Minnesota Twins, as the White Sox again are 10-2 and two against the Minnesota Twins in 2021. And it's not getting better for the Minnesota Twins. They just got swept by the Detroit Tigers and the Twins are 39-53 and 53 on the season. They are 17 games back of the Chicago White Sox. They're in fourth place in the American League Central because the Kansas City Royals are really playing poorly as of late. They're now 37-55 in the American League Central. Uh, Detroit, by the way, is 43-51. and 51. They still continue to play some pretty good baseball since May 1st. But in this series, it is a four-game series as Monday is a doubleheader as the White Sox and Twins make up one of the rained out games earlier this season. Here are the probable pitchers for this series starting on Monday, and this could change, but it's Lance Lynn. He's scheduled to start at 4.10 p.m. Central Time, and he's going up against Griffin Jacks. I never heard of Griffin Jacks before, uh, but he this will be his third start of the season. He's got an 8.66 ERA uh, as he struck out 14 over two starts, so we'll see how he fares against the White Sox. 
Then on Monday night, this is going to be about 30 to 45 minutes after game one. It is Jose Barreos for the Minnesota Twins and Ronaldo Lopez starting game two on Monday. And then on Tuesday night, 7, 10 p.m. Central Time, it's Bailey Ober against Dallas Keuchel. And then on Wednesday at 7.10, it's Michael Pineda and Dylan C. squaring off. All right, Jim. Ronaldo Lopez is back with the White Sox. He threw two scoreless innings on Friday against Houston. And uh, he looked okay. He, you know, he mm-hmm. wasn't, like, spectacular. Uh, he, You know, it was mop-up duty. But, you know, he got the job done, didn't allow any more runs. Uh, now he's making a start. Were you expecting this to happen again in 2021? I wasn't ruling it out. Like, I still thought that he would be behind Jonathan Stever and Jimmy Lambert. But when you you follow the box scores every day, like I do for the minor keys, just like nobody, you know, Lambert's been okay, but we've seen Lambert come up and struggle. Um, you know, he hasn't really run with any of his opportunities. Stever has been uh just kind of struggling, especially at home, which you know, I guess is no surprise given how tiny Truist field plays but just he's been off and then you know Lopez has been struggling more than anybody except as of late like he he turned in two really good six inning starts out of his last three as of late so if you look at the situation like a hot hand which I think you kind of have to given how uh yeah there there really hasn't been steady progress to be found and you know Jimmy Lambert has been disappointing I think Lopez probably is the guy who makes the most sense especially like in a doubleheader situation I think you know, maybe he's not a guy you want for a nine inning game, but in a situation where four innings is terrific <laughs> and, uh, you know, should he have Lance Lynn starting game one and throwing, you know, you know, hopefully six innings and leaving only one inning of relief, uh, that'd be cool. And then after that, you have the whole bullpen available. It's well rested from the previous two games, previous three, if Lynn does his job. And then all of a sudden, if Lopez goes three, you're fine. Like you're, you're in good shape. You're in good shape for the rest of the series. You have an off day that follows on Thursday. So I think this is pretty much the safest way to start Lopez. And yeah, I don't necessarily have high hopes, but I'm not counting him out just because I think the fastball command is better. I watched his, his good starts as of late and he still looks like the same guy, just, uh, you know, fastball heavy, you know, reliant on fastball command, making or breaking his night. Uh, the slider is sometimes okay, sometimes not. The curveball is sometimes okay, sometimes not. Like, he doesn't have a, a good breaking ball to go to. But the I think the thing that's different is the shortened arm swing. The delivery is a lot different. Uh, it looks like a lot more compact and direct to the plate, and he's not sacrificing much in the way of velocity, especially the velocity... It's a little bit up from what the velocity he showed last year with the shoulder issue. So it's a slightly better version of the one we saw last year, just based on, uh, you know, aesthetics and velocity and results. So he's worth a shot. I don't have high hopes, but I also, I'm not writing him off just because they only need four innings. And if he goes more or if the, uh, you know, say if it's a substantial lead and it makes sense to take a chance, uh, it wouldn't shock me and just, being that the twins are struggling the way that they are, you know, this is, this might be the best way to do it. That is true. I, I just don't have high expectations for Lopez. Like if he, yeah, nor should he. <laughs> if he goes four scoreless innings, I'm sure going to have people in the timeline be like, well, maybe he could be a factor. Maybe the White Sox don't need to trade for a reliever. Ronaldo Lopez is here. No, uh, <laughs> I will not be convinced of that. Uh, 
Yeah, I just don't have high, high expectations. Yeah, not as a reliever. I think his utility would be as a sixth starter or seventh starter. Like, you know, should that situation arise where there's a gap in the rotation and Michael Kopech is still too valuable as a setup guy and the division lead is substantial enough to where they just need to cross a day off the calendar, then I think Lopez can be that guy. I guess if you're comparing Lopez to Matt Foster... Maybe it makes sense to have yeah, Lopez a, instead of Foster. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're two fastball-reliant guys, and if they're both working the way they should, Lopez can throw twice as many innings in, a, in an outing. Yeah. So I think that's kind of how I look at it. It's like they're the same guy. Uh, fastball command, uber alles. Uh, there isn't Secondary stuff isn't working as well uh, these days, especially for Foster. So, yeah, just it's all about fastball placement and... Uh, just LaRusso wasn't using Foster. If he's not going to use Foster and, and Foster didn't really show why he should be used, then then swap it out just for a different look. And there's a utility there there that Lopez offers that you don't mind. And should, you know, let's say like the White Sox bank a win in game one and Lopez comes out and looks rough. You also don't mind just letting them have to wear it. Yeah. Like if they just have to, you know, if they'd rather not sacrifice the bullpen and scramble and they just want to, you know, have him give up uh, 10 runs over three innings, they they wouldn't mind. You know, he's been there before. By the way, this um, biggybacks our conversation on Sox Machine Live that we had regarding the seven inning doubleheaders. I was listening to the pregame show on Sunday and uh, Len Casper was interviewing Tony La Russa. And uh, La Russa is on my side, Jim. He's a big fan of the seven inning doubleheaders. Only because as a manager, it makes his life a lot easier. Because if he has Lynn throw a complete game, quote unquote, complete game. If Lynn goes seven innings in game one, that makes his life so much easier in game two. If, mm-hmm. if Lopez could go two or three, well, then I only have four more innings I got to cover. Yeah, everybody works less and they get paid exactly. the same. See, I think it's got a chance to stay. Runner on second base, probably not. <laughs> but the seven inning double headers, I, I do hope that they stay, and we'll we'll see what happens on that front. But the White Sox have seven inning double header on Monday, and then they'll face Bailey Ober on Tuesday. And Michael Pineda, he's been he's always thrown well against the White Sox. Uh, the White Sox will score three or four runs against Pineda, and we'll see how Dylan Cease does uh, in that start. It's also Dallas Keuchel's first start since the All-Star break on Tuesday night. So if the White Sox starters continue to do their job, if Lynn, Keuchel, and Cease throw the ball well, and the White Sox offense continues to hit, uh, then the White Sox, I'm not predicting sweep here, Jim, but it should be at least a series split, if not another series win. And I'm thinking that they could be 13-3 and three after the 16 games against the Minnesota Twins. And this is the, the last time they'll play the Twins at home for 2021. And there is one more series left against Minnesota from August 9th through the 11th. But this also, this series ends the gauntlet that I was talking about in May. This 68-game uh, stretch that the White Sox had. And uh, we'll recap as far as how the White Sox did during this gauntlet, obviously very well. They're 20 games above 500 on a Sox Machine Live on July 22nd, which is Thursday night. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, be, before the season started, this series would be played up way more than we have talked about on this podcast. But the reality is, is that the Twins are not very good. 
This could be Jose Barrios' last start in a Twins uniform <laughs> against the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Uh, Byron Buxton could be available in a trade. Nelson Cruz could be moved soon. The, the, the Twins are having the bottom fallout. It, it feels like the Twins are having their 2016 White Sox season. And it'd be interesting to see what direction that they go. But yeah, the White Sox win this series. They went three out of four. Or if they sweep the Twins again, I don't know how Minneapolis is going to handle the White Sox winning 14 out of 16 against the Twins in 2021 if that happens. I think it's Viking season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It might be Viking season already in Minneapolis. Well, it's already, yeah. Just imagine Viking season, the crowds will you know thin out and it'll just be like we've seen in... You know, past seasons for Minnesota when they've, you know, during like the late Ron Gardenhire era, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know that during rebuild season, usually when August comes around, it's bear season, but yep, it'll be, the bears will still be popular. Justin Fields would still be popular, um, but a very good White Sox team is rolling into <laughs> August. So divided attention. Finally, finally, finally. That's, that's all you can hope for in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, a story is Bears. B story is who the Cubs are trading before the deadline. C story, everyone gets happy to talk about the White Sox. You know, that's just how it is in sports radio. But I can't blame them. Anyways, you guys had a lot of questions for us, so let's answer them next in PO Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get asked the questions. It's P.O. Sox, which this week's P.O. Sox, all of our questions come from our Patreon supporters. As always, thank you guys so much for your support. We have over 530 Patreon supporters now, which just seems crazy to me every time I check it. Uh, again, thank you guys so much, and thank you for stocking the mailbag because we got a lot of questions this week. And for our Patreon supporters, Jim and I also have some bonus PO Sox questions that we will be answering uh, after these four questions that we're going to tackle here. And Jim, the first question or topic that we have comes from Brian Dolan. And Brian wrote to us, happy series win against the Strohs, Josh and Jim, with the recent home run derby in Colorado and this recent home run output by the White Sox. My question is, who do you believe has the prettiest home run swing on the White Sox? Trying to break things up from what will the White Sox trade for or need to trade for have a great start to your week. Well, thanks, Brian. So, Jim, who's got the prettiest home run swing on the White Sox? I think my favorite is Juan Moncada's from the left side. Yeah, that's a good one. The bat drop. The bat yeah, drop. Well, good. I like the combination of the bat drop and when he really gets a hold of one, like how he straightens his helmet afterwards. Like he drops the bat, then he reaches for his helmet to straighten it out. And I think it's just because, you know, the, the torque on a swing must rattle it a bit. But also it just kind of looks like, oh, my God, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> like just like you know is somebody going to get hurt in the crowd with how hard i hit that ball there's just it looks like a natural reaction of like surprising himself which i think is you know if i hit a ball that hard i would be surprised <laughs> so <laughs> it feels like it humanizes him a little bit i think the other one i like it would be uh number two would be when eloy jimenez gets a hold of one it's like such a oh, yeah. a swat like that's the word that comes to mind just for some reason like he's got a tremendous amount of bat speed but his barrel seems so like slow going over the plate just like 
He gets quick to the hitting zone, but then his barrel spends a lot of time there to make sure he gets it right. You know, almost like he warps time a little bit. And when he gets a hold of one and just, uh, it doesn't look as violent as Moncada's off the bat, like from the center field cam, but then you just see the ball drifting and drifting and drifting with the backspin then landing like over the batter's eye. (laughs) Even like the center fielder gets fooled because usually a center field drifts with it a lot. And then just, it just keeps soaring. Uh, That's, I think, really impressive me as well. So those are my, the two that jump out. Those are good. Those are two good picks. I'm going to show some love to Yasmani Grandal, especially from the right side where he, when he gets into what he just kind of flings the bat yeah. as part of his follow through. Uh, Cause boy, when he gets into one, it, there's no doubt about it based on his swing on where that ball is landing, even on the left side too, uh, when he really connects and now I miss Yasmani Grandal. Get better Grandal. It looks like he's uh he's still with the team after surgery. So he's rejoined the team. He's doing running drills right now. It's still like a month away, possibly before he gets back into uh, the White Sox lineup and we start seeing him games again. But so far, it looks good that, you know, he's moving. So that's that's really good news for for White Sox fans. But even Jose Abreu, when he really gets into one like on Saturday, the no doubters, there's some pretty swings uh, on this roster for the White Sox. I guess flip side, do you know of anyone that's ever had an ugly home run swing? Uh, I, I think it's not ugly, just more of a matter of like... Um, I can't believe he hit it that far. Yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, it's just unremarkable, like which I think is, you know, just... Uh, like I would say Tim Anderson's home run swing. Like Tim Anderson's home run swing is more for his flip. It's not mm-hmm. like the actual connection. Like sometimes you know, a lot of his, like, you know, say home runs like are... are Either like you know the the home runs that he hit the opposite field just you know barely get over the fence and in that direction like he doesn't have like kind of the opposite field power that Jimenez has um, in, in that regard and then like when he pulls it you know it's usually down the line so it's usually not the kind of majestic home run uh, that you know Mancada or Jimenez can hit so I think that affects kind of think the trajectory of the home run affects how uh, pretty the follow through is so I think that's mm. that has a lot to do with it although Jake Berger you know his first homer. Uh, that was an interesting one to me just because it seems like it's almost like an, an X chop. Like he doesn't have kind of like the big uppercut follow through it. it almost, the bat almost comes like horizontally across his body. Hmm. And, and I have to watch the replay again. Yeah, I, I should watch it too. Just to make sure I'm describing it right. And I'm not <laughs> hallucinating or thinking of something else, but, uh, yeah, it was just, it was, uh, kind of, you know, a unique, or, or not as like a, a you know, uppercut the way you see when you, you see a ball hit that far. So I'm curious to see whether that was just a product of the pitch he got or whether that's his swing. Because I know like when he came into the league, when he came into professional baseball, like he had a kind of a flat bat and you know, had to work to elevate the ball and not hit so many grounders. And if you hit something like that, that's great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your question and thank you for breaking it up. I appreciate it. Our next question comes from Derek King, and Derek wrote to us, Jim, it looks like the Miami Marlins and Starlin Marte can't get together on a contract extension, and then he'll be very available in the next two weeks. And I got an update here from Craig Mish, reporter out of Miami. He is Mr. Insider when it comes to the Marlins. And Craig Mish has even backed up Derek uh, to tweet while we were recording that contract extensions have just ended between the Marlins and Marte. So expect Marte to be traded within the next two weeks. 
Where does Marte slot in among other White Sox wish listers like Joey Gallo and Adam Frazier, Chris Bryant, Craig Kimbrell, and Eduardo Escobar? What do you think the prospect cost would be to acquire him? And if the White Sox did acquire him, would you want the White Sox to solve right field long term by paying him the $50 million plus over three to four years he reportedly asked for from the Marlins? Well, I like him as a player, and I think he's a good fit for the White Sox. He has a right-handed bat, so if you want that lefty hitting uh, right fielder, like you know, Adam Eaton was, you know, they, they kind of dreamed up for him, and that never quite materialized. Then I think it's a case where you know you might be a little bit disappointed. But when it comes to you know his ability to hit righties, which I think is ultimately what you're looking for, and like when we talk about Elo Jimenez coming back, like one of the reasons why he was so vital to the offense is because he can hit righties pretty much as well as he hits lefties. I think that's what you're looking for with Marte and he hits righties a little bit better than lefties over the course of his career. Not enough to make a difference, but he's, you know, you're fine starting him either way, plays good defense, runs the base as well. So, I mean, like he's a good fit and, and everything you want. Uh, the one thing that, there are a couple of things that give me pause a little bit for just, you know, whether it would be a great fit for him as he enters his age 33 season, uh, one of them is that his walk rate is a career high, which is normally good news. I just always wonder when you have like uh, a player having a big jump in walk rate at a time where they're you know entering their mid thirties, does that mean their bat's slowing and they're not making the kind of contact they'd normally make? And so they have to lay off more pitches or they don't drive as many pitches as they normally do. And, and so that they, you know, just th- there might be uh, cases where, uh, a pitch they would have hammered is now fouled off and they draw a walk later in the at-bat. That's just, I've seen that happen before. Like Jermaine Dye, the end of his career is the one where I learned that lesson, where sometimes, you know, walk rates later on are not always the best thing. Um, the other thing is that he's, you know, kind of a career national leaguer. And so he's never played in the American League, uh, really no familiarity with it. And that's kind of, I guess when I think about it, I kind of like the idea of trading for him almost like a trial run. Um, Cause I, I'm thinking back when the white Sox uh, signed Adam Dunn and before they signed Adam Dunn, they talked about trading for Adam Dunn the season before. And I just wonder like if they traded for Adam Dunn and used that as a trial period and went just as poorly as his, uh, his, his first season and, and the bulk of his white Sox career went. like, would that have been enough to avoid that contract and that series of decisions that kind of plague the White Sox and the DH position for pretty much an entire decade. And so, you know, I think if you're looking at perhaps acquiring a guy in the off season, it doesn't, yeah, I I think it makes some sense to acquire him for a half season when he can make a big deal for wins. Like, you know, marginal wins are very important. Postseason win, uh, you know, what he adds to a postseason lineup is very important. So I don't, I kind of like the idea of acquiring him at this point just to see if it makes sense to sign him uh, following the season. So I just don't, I'm having a hard time with this White Sox farm system, knowing what's an adequate cost or like what's what other teams would want just because as, as you know, we've been talking about in minor league reports and farm fortnights, just it's pretty slim pickings for players. You feel like you can project on a timetable to the major leagues. Well, that's why I'm going to throw this trade idea to you. Because it was rumored that Miami called about Yermin Mercedes before the season started. And that Mm -hmm. was before the White Sox added Mercedes to their opening day roster. And we know how April went. 
what if you're able to package your Mercedes and Micro Adolfo, who is going to be, I think, what, a free, a minor league free agent after this season, uh, who's mashing in double A right now? What if you package those two in exchange for Marte? I'd do that immediately. I know you would do that immediately, but if Miami wants major league ready bats, would they entertain that idea? I don't know what position Mercedes is playing for Miami right now without a DH, but that situation can change next season. If a universal DH is negotiated in the CBA and a Miami needs a DH, well, there you go. Here's a DH for you guys on the cheap for a few years. And maybe they could be the ones to call up Mike Rodolfo immediately to the major leagues and see how he does against major league pitching. I'm not hopeful for him, but, you know, maybe it could create a spark. Uh, and they still have control of Adolfo for a few years as far as team control to avoid him being a minor league free agent. That's that's what I would offer. It's not. I'm sure another team could probably beat it out. But that's the most interesting offer that I could make to the Miami Marlins because I don't feel like they think they're rebuilding. Like they are in a situation because their run differential is pretty good uh, that if they just had more offense to be paired up with their pretty good starting pitching. I mean, they they pitch pretty well. Miami does uh, that. They would be in much better shape in the National League East. So if they feel like they need more power and they need more bats and they need major league ready bats for Marte. I would offer Yuma Mercedes and Mike Rodolfo because at least in Miami, both of those guys can have the opportunity to play in the majors with that team and they can get a test run of the second half with both of them and see what they can provide and hope that there's a universal DH next year to keep Mercedes in the lineup. And then meanwhile, the White Sox hit like a two month trial with Starlin Marte. Yeah. I guess we could maybe lump this in the next question, uh, which is about Craig Kimbrell. And sure. uh, I guess we can just skip ahead. Like Ben asked, like what kind of return would you expect the Cubs are demanding for Craig Kimbrell? Uh, and the White Sox seem to be in a uniquely strong position to dodge his vesting option for 2022 with an all-star closer already on board because he's got a vesting option based on games finished. And that's a case where, you know, in that sense, like, you know, that, that's another guy who, should have multiple suitors the way that Marte has multiple teams interested in him. Proven, you know, he's basically the best possible upgrade for his position, probably, you know, especially with Marte's ability to cover center field. So, uh, you know, that's for a rental player like that. Uh, the guy I, that comes to mind for me is Gavin Sheets. Yeah. I, yeah. And, you know, is that an overpay? Is that too, like, I have a hard time gauging somebody like him. Because the White Sox took their time adding him to the 40-man roster. They didn't have him uh, at their alternate training site just last year. And, you know, he had a good year at Charlotte. Everybody has a good year at Charlotte. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to gauge his minor league numbers. So that's another thing that kind of obfuscates just how a, another team might value him. But been very good so far, I, I think, exceeding my expectations, certainly, for his first uh, swings at major league pitching. So... Uh, you know, the reason why I think I'd be fine with the White Sox trading him is because they have, you know, just so many guys at first base DH. And if one of them hits elsewhere, you know, that's just the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the guy who I think could have some appeal. The fact that he's playing a corner outfield and, and doing so in the major leagues, even if he's not quite playing full games there yet in games where he his defense can swing it. At least there's some... 
potential there for flexibility for a National League team to where he could have some appeal. Well, for Jed Hoyer, that gives you leverage in contract negotiations with Anthony Rizzo. Because if Rizzo says, peace, all right, well, Gavin Sheets, you're my starting first baseman in 2022 and beyond, at least for the, the short term. So that helps you there, especially for budget reasons. And let's be real with the Chicago Cubs. Uh, it's all about budget these days. It's all about money on the upcoming moves that they're going to be making. I feel like that's a fair trade. I mean, Cubs fans may be like, well, we want to get younger. We want more prospects. I feel Gavin Sheets for Craig Kimbrell, two months at Craig Kimbrell in exchange for someone that could play first base or a corner outfield. And again, if there's universal DH and get at bats at DH and I like Gavin Sheets and it would be a bit painful to part ways with him. But let's be real. If Robert and Jimenez and Grandal get healthy, uh, Berger and Sheets are not on a postseason roster, guys. They're going back to Charlotte. So, yeah, I, I'm game with that. So let's let's call him up, Jim. Let's call up, uh, let's call up Kimine and J- uh, Jed Hoyer and be like, we're gonna give you Gavin Sheets for Craig Kimbrell, and we're giving you Yerman Mercedes and Mike Rodolfo for Starlin Marte. We're trading the pieces that we don't want <laughs> in exchange <laughs> yeah. for really good players, you know, because those trades always work, always work. I, I'm being sarcastic here. Uh, but that might be the best that the White Sox could offer. But then again, it's different situations in Miami and in Chicago than it is when you're having conversations with Pittsburgh, who's clearly rebuilding, and who the heck knows what's going on in Arizona and Colorado and what they want. Yeah, Gavin Sheets, I think he passes the test in terms of just hitting well enough both in Charlotte and Chicago to where you'd feel a pang of loss for not having him around. Whereas like with Adolfo and Mercedes, I don't have that ping. Well, you should because it'll help sell my idea to Miami. <laughs> it would it would gut me. There you go. That's what I, I, that's would, what I need uh, to hear. Uh, but anyways, great questions, guys. I would go for a long walk in the forest and not come back. <laughs> don't get lost. Uh, thank you so much, Derek and Ben. Great questions. All right. And then here's a question from Mark. And I feel like we're stealing from our friends from the 108 with this question, but let's go ahead and address it. Mark wrote to us, are the White Sox shooting themselves in the foot by, on most accounts, welcoming large crowds back with poor fan experiences? I've seen lots of comments this weekend regarding issues with parking, lines at the gate, and concession lines. If people are returning for the first time in a decade and have a bad experience, I could see them not returning. Well, I think you're better suited to answer this question since you can walk to the park and you've been there this weekend. So go for it. It's bad. I mean, well, let's talk about the good. The White Sox had 102,000 fans attend this weekend series against the Houston Astros. And in in two weeks, when Cleveland comes into town and Aloy Jimenez returns back from his rehab stint uh, in AAA, I'm expecting another 100,000-plus fans attending games uh, for that series. And the problem is very much like other issues in Chicago, especially with food service or trying to get an Uber or Lyft or cab, is that... There's there's just not enough workers at the moment. And that is a very economical, political conversation that 
I'm not an expert in. I can't answer the question on why people are not flooding back to working restaurant jobs or picking people up like they used to for Ubers and Lyfts. But it's pretty clear the White Sox just don't have enough on-hand support in the stadium to service 30-plus thousand fans. They just don't. Uh, There are people that want to see the beer vendors return, and I'm with you. Uh, Again, our friends from the 108 are going to probably talk about this in their podcast later this week a little bit more than we are. But they, they know and they've told me that there are card scanners for vendors that the White Sox have, but there was a technology issue that they're trying to resolve. And hopefully they have beer vendors soon uh, to try to help alleviate at least the issue of fans trying to buy beer or or even food. They have online ordering. Uh, But when I went to the game on Saturday, uh, it worked for me because I put in my online order before the first inning. But I was told by nearby fans that on Friday night, the White Sox had to refund 250 plus orders because they just don't have enough of a staff to get the food in the basket and get people to deliver the items to the fans in the stands. So that's very frustrating too. You put in an order in the fifth inning and it never arrives. Uh, and then you get your money back, which is fine, but you wanted to spend the money to get soda or food, like a hot dog or beer. It's very simple online ordering. It's not like you're getting nacho fries or, um, you know, the nacho helmet or the ice cream sundae. You're not, it's really basic items that you can order online. It's, it's not a good, it's not a good experience. It's, it's to the point. That if you're going to go to the White Sox game and you want to enjoy concessions and you want to enjoy the beer that they offer, you have to go there early and you have to go there when the gates open. And in that hour time frame that you've got before first pitch, that's when you can enjoy it. Because as soon as it hits the second inning, there's no chance. The lines are way too long. You're missing multiple innings. Uh, it's the same issue as far as going to the bathrooms as well. It's just the White Sox do not have enough staff right now in stadium operations to handle a 30,000 plus crowd. And it's also that way for restaurants in Chicago. And it's also that way for car services right now. It's that way in a lot of areas in the city. So I'm not one to be like, oh, this is terrible. And I raise a big stink because... For me, yeah, I, if I want to tailgate, I can just tailgate at my house and then and then walk to the game. There are plenty of restaurants and bars also around the stadium that I would recommend going to right now and getting food and drink before coming into the stadium. And of course, the White Sox, they do allow tailgating so you can tailgate in the parking lot. That's what you're going to have to do right now to eat and drink. You're going to have to do it before because once you're in the stadium – you're going to find a lot of difficulties to enjoy the concessions and beer inside the stadium because it's just taking way too damn long. Yeah. When I went to Alaska, yeah, I, I ran into that issue in a few places. One was that my flight, my initial connecting flight from Seattle to Anchorage was canceled for the, all flights from Seattle to Anchorage were canceled that afternoon. Uh, like I think eight flights were canceled because of crew shortages. 
So, you know, that's a case where you had to wait in line for customer service for two hours, then go to the hotel room they give you and wait in line two hours there to check in because the hotel is short on workers. So I kind of ran into that there. And then you go to Alaska where you know, a lot of the tourist towns kind of rely on guest visa workers. And, and because of COVID and, and immigration restrictions, uh, those workers aren't in. So you have some restaurants that are just taking orders and, and, you know, normally it'd be a quick counter service turnaround, but they take 45 minutes. Other restaurants are managing expectations by limiting capacity to 50% because those are the only tables they can turn around in a time that represents good customer service and just different ways of handling it. But none of them are optimal. None of them are really optimal for consumers. The businesses aren't what they want them. So yeah, it's just, it doesn't strike me as, yeah, I, I would hope that White Sox fans who go to the park uh, this weekend and and uh, the month, you know, <laughs> however long this takes, uh, you know, maybe even the rest of the season, depending on how long it, it takes to staff up. Just, uh, I wonder if they've had enough experiences elsewhere in other fields, other uh, other areas of life, to where um, you just kind of get used to things taking longer. Like I'm thinking, even just like you know, ordering appliances or getting repairs getting parts in like you know, like the supply chains being disrupted like everything takes longer right now so i wonder if uh fans won't necessarily hold that against the white Sox as much as uh you know once they kind of uh, factor it in with every other way that things are delayed right now they will because <laughs> it, it's already begun like they're they're, well, they're yeah, mad at just, the white Sox know, for not having enough people to help out and it's bad too like trying to park like there were people complaining on Sunday that it was taking up 45 minutes just to get in the parking lot that's been a common complaint for the entire season because they just don't have enough parking lot attendants right now to handle all of the traffic when you're leaving the stadium it is chaos even for someone walking through the parking lot and walking home you could just see they don't have enough people to direct traffic so it's every person for themselves to get out of the parking lot, mm. which is not exactly safe. Uh, it, yeah, it's just you're right, Jim. It's it's like in every industry right now, there's just not enough people uh, working as far as uh, in these areas. And it is impacting the, the customer experience. So if you were expecting to get blitzed at a White Sox game, oh, I'm going to have six or eight beers. I'm going to do some hashtag 108ing. Uh, no, you're not. Uh, if you're going to be hashtagging 108, you're doing that before the game or you are doing that after the game because your chances to get two beers are pretty slim right now attending a White Sox game because it's just taking it forever. Yeah, I, I just think you know, you'll see you know, upset tweets and comments and such. And, you know, it's it's understandable because you're paying a good amount of money to go to a game. So customer satisfaction does matter, even if it's really hard or impossible for a business to meet it. Like it is part of the just pact between customer and business that, uh, you know, certain needs are met in, in a reasonable amount of time. But I just wonder, you know, once you step away from the game, once you leave the park, once you like just run into that issue, in another, another industry, whether that just fans will come back because that's just how things are right now. Well, the reason why to go to games is that the White Sox are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the primary reason why you're going to games. And if that, yeah. if you just continue to think that way, you're going to have a great, you're going to have a good time. Well, it would be like, it would be something that after all these years of attendant shaming and, you know, when, when like say uh, Kenny Williams or Don Cooper would criticize fans for not showing up 
fans would, you know, kind of list the reasons why they wouldn't show up, like, you know, getting caught in traffic, tickets too expensive, um, you know, just, you know, just whatever, whatever reason they could to come up with for not going, they would just list them. And that's why attendance shaming was so dumb, just because like, if you're, if you're giving, if you're putting fans in the defensive and letting them publicize all the reasons they don't like coming to the park, that's just bad business. Like that's just bad marketing. So in this case, if the White Sox, you know, do keep quiet in, in part of it's, you know, COVID too, just, you know, warping attendance numbers and not making anything really the way it was like, if you just keep quiet about attendance and let fans show up when they want to, when they're inspired by the product to do so, and they come and fill the stadium, despite all the things that would make the experience miserable, you know, just on a, in a normal year in a normal economic environment, then, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, just, I think proves the fans points that it really was the team. And also I think, you know, if fans show up the rest of the season with the team looking this good and the, and the customer experience being this rough, then I think you can put all those, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, fear mongering about moving the team because the White Sox don't draw to rest. Like if they're drawing with all these obstacles, then it was always the team. <laughs> it was always the lack of sustainable success that really just made attending White Sox games and committing to multiple White Sox games a year a chore. Well, when you don't pay rent unless 2 million fans attend, as a business, you get conflicted, Jim, and just mm-hmm. how good of a team that you want. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark, again, I think there's going to be a lot more conversation about this. The White Sox have three more home games before they hop on the road and their their big home weekend series is going to be Cleveland, especially with the trade deadline looming. The White Sox could have some new faces. Aloy Jimenez is going to be back, so everyone will want to be in attendance. That Cleveland series from July 30th through August 1st, that's going to draw, again, that's going to draw more than 100,000 fans. So we'll see if things improve over the next couple of weeks for the White Sox, but it's going to be packed. It's going to be packed this summer, and it's a good sight to see. And again, if you just remember, you're there to watch a really good White Sox team, you're going to have fun. Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next set of questions come from our Patreon supporters. These are your bonus P.O. Sox questions, guys. And the first question comes from Brett. And Brett is asking, assuming no other injuries take place. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions and topics this week for P.O. Sox. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to address on an upcoming episode of the Sox Machine podcast, the best way to do it is by becoming a Patreon supporter, which you can do at patreon.com slash socks machine and again we have several different uh monthly support tiers at, at two dollars three dollars five dollars and ten dollars uh so betting depending on your budget we've got options and for our patreon supporters they get exclusive content ad free versions of the podcast and website and they also get an opportunity to be the first ones to get our new socks machine swag and this is a good segue to Jim to tell you about our Sox Machine caps and where we are right now with the pre-order on the in the Sox Machine store. And where are we right now in the Sox Machine caps in the pre-order, Jim? We are entering our last full day of the pre-order period. I'm going to round them all up around noon on Tuesday, just in case people are getting the podcast like late Monday night. And this is their reminder to do so. Uh yeah, the pre-order period's open around noon Tuesday. I'll close it. I'll put in orders for 
um, all the caps I have, plus, you know, a handful of extras each size for uh, people who just couldn't get around to it, um, were on vacation, what have you, just, uh, I, I forgive you. <laughs> Not looking for excuses. There's more along the lines of just covering everything. Uh, uh, any reason people might not have gotten the pre-order, um, I'll make sure that they're covered. Um, but yeah, that's so basically if you want to get in, if you want your cap guaranteed, if you don't want to have to worry about it at a later date, uh, put your pre-order in uh, between now and noon central on Tuesday. Yes, and that's a great way to help support us. So again, if you're not yes. a Patreon supporter, but you do want to help out, Go to the Socks Machine store and pre-order the new Socks Machine cap now. Also, other promotional uh, topic, I guess, announcement. We're going to have more information about the tailgate in Milwaukee. We're very excited. This is going to be on Saturday, July 24th. We've got almost 150 people that have said that they're going to be attending. And every single day, there are more people emailing me and reaching out on Twitter, asking if we could still have more people. Uh, it's going to be an open tailgate. I can't promise there's going to be enough food if 500 people are going to show up. Uh, beer, I don't <laughs> yeah, and fishes. Beer, I don't think it's going to be a problem. Uh, but yeah, if you're going to be attending the White Sox Brewers game on Saturday, July 24th, Jim and I will be there. We're also co-hosting with our friends from the 108. They're going to be there, and there's going to be a lot of White Sox fans there as well. Uh, we'll be grilling some food. There'll be plenty of beer. We'll have the tailgate tent. Everyone's been asking which parking lot. I don't know because the Milwaukee Brewers haven't told me yet. But once I do know, I will be writing a post on SoxMachine.com with the tailgate details. So look for that post later this week with the details and which parking lot we're going to be at, where in that parking lot we're going to be at, and the, and the other details as far as times that you can enter the parking lot, etc. So definitely be on the lookout for that and can't wait to see everybody on Saturday, July 24th in Milwaukee. That will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Socks Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. As the Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.